Welcome back, everybody, to the second edition of the Say the Damn Score podcast. And today we are joined by an extra special guest, as he is the program director of WBAL, and he has been a lot of places along the way, including ESPN as a head executive and talent coach for the network. And Scott Masteller, how are you doing today? Doing great. How about yourself? Any better, and I would be you. Okay, sounds like a plan. So you have been in the sports radio business in some capacity for approximately 35 years. You started off, I believe, as a double-A baseball announcer, and you have gone to do on-air stuff, and you have been program director. Is there any job at the radio station that you haven't done at this point? No, my my actual broadcast career started in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and probably the like anybody, I did high school games, basketball, football, and then Little League Baseball, the World Series, obviously takes place in Williamsport, which is now a major um, you know, televised event by ESPN. But back in those days, it was just uh, you know, a couple of games on ABC on the weekend, and there were only eight games, and we would locally broadcast those games. But at the same time, I was working at a radio station. It was just like the kind of radio station you hear about in the old TV show WKRP in Cincinnati, and I was doing everything. I could be, you know, working Saturday night, then sleeping in a sleeping bag at the station overnight, and then working Sunday morning and coming back Sunday night, all just for a chance maybe to talk up a few few records, actual records, in the late 70s. And then uh, as, as things evolved, I got a chance to do some sports and did a number of things. I was at a couple of different stations in that market, and then eventually the the second station I was at, we were actually one of the first FM stations to do sports, and now FM is is synonymous with a lot of sports stations. They walked in one day and said, sorry, we're out of money, and that's about it. And so I had to really figure out for the first time, I'd spent like 15 years in that market. I was big fish in a little pond, and uh, I did did the radio show in the afternoon from 2 to 6. I did the games. I was the wedding DJ on the weekend with a sound system. So I was making enough money to get by, but all of a sudden I had no income. But I had taken an interest in baseball and double-A baseball, and Williamsport actually had a team. That was back in 1991. It was the the, the last year they had a double-A team. It was the Mets double-A franchise. And Clint Hurdle, who is now the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates, was the manager of that team. And I built a relationship. This is what I tell a lot of young broadcasters, how important it is to build relationships. I built a relationship with the GM prior to that season, and he worked it out that I did like 100 games. I didn't do the full schedule, but I did 100 games, was on the bus, um, you know, had no money. I remember one time being on a road trip in London, Ontario, and I was down to $1.50 on hmm. the last night. And for some reason, the manager's wife felt bad for me and bought me a hot dog, and that was my meal. But Having a great time, but anyway, the, the station had gone under, and I eventually was able to get myself a, a job over the phone. I took the job with a double-A team in Wichita, Kansas, and I went out to Wichita, and for three summers, I did double-A baseball, and I learned so much. Probably the best time I ever have. I still have the letter from the GM. I actually took the job over the phone, and they said, we'll pay you this amount of money, and it was not very much money, but I didn't care. I just wanted to do it and gain the experience. And that's really how it all started. And going from that point, what was your big break to becoming a successful sports talk host in many major markets across the country? Everybody has a story or some weird quirk that really is very, very random that got them their big break. What was yours? 
So when I was in Wichita, it was the third summer, and I realized I wasn't making enough money. And part of my responsibility was on the off days to go to the radio station and record the promos and the commercials and all that. And I got to know the program director at that radio station, and he was a music station, and then there was the AM that ran the games. And I was sitting in his office, and there was a copy of the old uh, Radio and Records magazine, which we all used to look at. And in that, in that magazine, I pulled out the job ads, and there was a job calling for a talk show host, program director, play-by-play guy in an unannounced southeast market. So I ripped it out, put it in my pocket. I eventually went back, and I found a tape. It wasn't a very good tape. It was a cassette, and I sent it, and I didn't hear anything for like three or four weeks. And then I was sitting in a hotel room in San Antonio, Texas, getting ready to call a baseball game and the phone rings and it's my wife calling me back from pennsylvania and carol says you won't believe it but this guy with the deepest set of pipes just called and said you're a finalist for a program director job and he's going to call you so this guy he's one of the the biggest broadcast uh, consultants in sports radio business rick scott one of my closest friends and he called me and said we're trying to find a program director for this sports station in lexington kentucky you'd have to host a uh, talk show You'd also get to do some play-by-play, SEC, you know, women's basketball and SEC baseball. And so the, uh, the GM eventually called me. They flew me in for the interview. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a cool story, as you say, story. So, you know, they're trying to find a time for me to come in, and I'm calling games. And so I said, well, I have a day game on, I think it was like Wednesday. should be done about 3.30 or 4. I could take the flight and the flight to Cincinnati, and then it was to Lexington, Kentucky. And so they said, that's fine, then you can fly back the next day for the night game and you'll make it in time. So anyway, we're in the, uh, top, in, the, in the bottom of the ninth inning, and the Wichita Wranglers, the team I'm calling, they're losing 9-3. to three. They score six runs <laughs> to tie the game, and we go to extra innings. My flight's at like 6 o'clock. We're in like the 17th inning. I finally had to like, get the business manager to finish the broadcast. And the sales manager drove me to the airport, you know, and the, I think Wichita won the game, which was great. And, you know, the, the players on the team gave me a lot, of, a lot of hassle, and it was in the paper the next day that I'd walked out. But I got to Kentucky in time for the interview, then I flew back the next day for the game. And they eventually offered me the job, and that really turned out to be my big break because that consultant, and it was a small market for him, but the owner wanted to do it the right way, that that consultant is one of my longtime friends now in the business, and he, when he came to town, he took three days, put me in a conference room, and taught me the business of sports radio. He just put me through the ringer, every aspect about you know, how, to, how to put the format together, <clears throat> what to do in a show. I had never done a talk show other than a couple of interview shows years ago, and I got great experience from there, and from there I went from market to market. I was in Kentucky for two years, that's when Rick Pitino was the coach, and they won the national championship. Then I went to Salt Lake City for the same owner, and I got to cover the Utah Jazz and the Chicago Bulls in the finals. It's always the one game. We didn't have the rights, but we did pre- and post-game shows. It was the one game where Jordan was sick, but it didn't matter. Everybody knew he was going to score 30-plus points, and he did. And then from there, that station, as happens to a lot of us, went went belly up. They, They decided to change the format. But I, I learned the value of networking, and within about three months, I got a job working for a sports station in Portland, Oregon, KFXX 910 The Fan. And as I got there, they hired this guy to do uh, middays, one to three. He started two weeks later. Some people may know his name. It was Colin Cowherd. And so Colin was the 
midday talent. I was the afternoon drive talent of the program director and uh, did really well there. We built a really good radio station. I was there for about five years. And then from there, um, I started networking again, met some people, and all of a sudden ESPN approached me and offered me an opportunity. In fact, they'd offered me an opportunity earlier to go to Pittsburgh, and I said no. I didn't think it was as good a job. But about a year later, they called me about the startup they were putting on the air in Dallas, and I went to Dallas, Texas, and I put on 103.3 FM ESPN, and that's how that started. I want to go back a little bit to something you said about that interview where you had to leave the game to get there. In theory, let's look back and say you didn't get that job. What would your explanation have been to your boss at that time for why you left a game and made your manager finish it? Well, I was smart enough. I let the boss know ahead of time, and he he said, have somebody ready just in case, you know, and and so we all had a good laugh about it, but it was in the paper the next day, and at that point in time, you know, the amount of money I was making with the baseball team versus the offer I got from the radio station, it was such that I had to take the job. It was a, It was a pretty a sizable jump and it's it's really a good lesson for any broadcaster any manager just you know make sure that you know i always tell this to talent when i coach talent never assume and the same thing works with managers make sure you never assume they know what you know and so i was i was fortunate that i took the time to do all that and in the end it all worked out so tell me this then as someone who's in a position who does hiring and has people leave and has to replace them i've heard a couple different schools of thought on this. Do you, if someone's starting to begin a job search process and they want to try to move on or move up or whatever the case may be, do you want to know about it in advance or should they keep it to themselves? I think that there's a point in time where if you think it's realistic that it's in your best interest to have an open conversation with your supervisor, but it, there's no cookie-cutter approach to it. It all depends upon the relationship that's been built over time between the talent and the supervisor. Different things happen in different scenarios. You know, I think it's the responsibility of all managers to have succession planning. You know, who's going to replace that person if that person leaves? You know, and that's one of the, I mean, I've been in this new job in Baltimore for about seven months. It's one of the things I'm working on is, okay, who's next in line if somebody moves on? Because a lot of times, you know, program directors, general managers, sales managers don't plan for that, and then they kind of, kind of really scramble. You know, one of the one of the great examples I can give was, um, you know, there was always the fierce battle in morning drive television between Good Morning America, and between the Today Show, and the folks at NBC went and hired away Josh Elliott. You know, and the next day they announced the successor, and then at one point, uh, the Weather Channel, which is owned by NBC Universal. Hired away Sam Champion. Well, the day they announced that, Ginger Lee took over as the next weathercaster. So it's clear they had a good plan for succession. And that way, you know, if you're the program director or the manager of the station or the entity that's putting out the content, you're kind of always prepared for what may be coming along next. That That's one of the most important things today because you want to try to make sure that things run uh, fluid and smoothly as you segue from one event to the next. Covering minor league baseball and riding the bus all around the country. Give us a couple good stories on the road where maybe the bus broke down in a strange place or the players did something wild. So um, I remember one trip I was on a bus and um, it was interesting when I was in Wichita, we actually flew 
to the Texas teams because they were so far away. That was El Paso, Midland, Texas, and San Antonio. But we did take the bus to the Eastern Eastern Division team. So we were on a long bus ride. I think we were going to Jacksonville, Mississippi. And when we were taking this trip, it was right before the All-Star break, and the managers of the Wichita team got the honor to host the All-Star game wherever it was. So, you know, the baseball team left Wichita for the first game after the All-Star break, but the managers weren't on the bus. So as the radio guy, I'm sitting in, like, row three or four, and back then you, you had a Walkman. You didn't have an iPhone. And I'm listening to my music, and it's like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I wake up, and I notice there's this, this creature crawling down my chest. And it's a, it's a ferret. Here there was a pitcher by the name of Mike Linsky, who had been at one point in the Orioles organization. He had a pet ferret that he brought with him on the bus. And they decided to put it you know, on me to try to spook me. I was so upset that they did this, I didn't get spooked. I was mad. I picked the ferret up. I walked to the back of the bus, and I gave it to Mr. Linsky. And I said, this is yours, and I wish you would keep it away from everybody. I'm trying to get some rest. And the players just erupted in laughter because I stood up to them. And so that, that, was, that was a pretty good one. Um, you know, and then it, it's just doing games in different locations. I remember um, Midland, Texas was a place where it was so warm during the summer. I remember my last game, I think the game time temperature was 118 degrees and the wind was blowing out of the west at like 30 miles an hour. So it was like walking into a blast furnace. But it was a ballpark where... It's now, now they have a new park, but it was an old ballpark. And the owner tried to save money by turning the lights off as soon as the game was over. Like within five minutes, people got out of the stands and go. And we had an open-air press box with fluorescent lighting. So if you turn off all the lights in the ballpark on a hot summer night, 85, 90 degrees, what do you think is going to happen if you have an open-air press box, you know, with fluorescent lights? <laughs> Every bug in Texas is going to come into your booth. <laughs> and say hello. And that that reminds me of my first time I got to call baseball, which was back in the Eastern League in Double A, and we were in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I was I was kind of like the colored guy, the guy you saw in the movie Major League that really <laughs> didn't say anything. That was kind of me, you know. And I was sitting there with a longtime legend in Williamsport, PA, who had called the games, and I was just there to add a little color and texture. Well, it was a hot summer night, and the windows were open, and all of a sudden, at one point. The, the gentleman that's calling the game, he swallows a fly live on the air. <laughs> and so his voice is gone, and he's like tapping me on the shoulder, like, oh, go ahead, kid, it's your chance. And that was how I got to call my first game. So <laughs> you got to be in the right place at the right time, you know? Absolutely. And you've been, as we mentioned, in a lot of markets, but one of them that I find interesting, I'm from Nebraska, and I know how Nebraska fans like their Nebraska football, and that's frequently compared to the way that Lexington, Kentucky, like Wildcat basketball, how was it covering a fan base that was so wildly passionate and didn't really have a whole lot of other sports interests? So all that really mattered in Lexington, all that matters is Kentucky basketball. So I get there, and I started, um, it was in late July, early August, and I, I knew I had to do my homework. The first day I'm on the air, I get a phone call right away from a listener. And he's like, so is Ron Mercer going to come to Kentucky? I mean, the, the, and, and I had done my homework. The obsession with recruiting was, you know, unbelievable. And you really had to do that. And, and Mercer was one of the huge recruits that they eventually signed. 
and got to go. I remember the day that he signed, we did like six hours of talk just about Ron Mercer and what he meant to basketball. Now, back in those days, you know, they would have Midnight Madness, but it was on the same day that the, the football team was playing on a Saturday. And you can remember sitting there in the stands at Commonwealth Stadium at about 10, 10.30, the game was still going on, people started leaving. It was like, where's everybody going? And they were going over to watch Kentucky basketball when they would come out on the floor at midnight. Rick Patino was the coach. And that really, you know, every little thing really mattered over there, you know. I was actually um, talking to a friend, and he was asking me about what it was like working in Lexington. And he brought up at one point the Wildcats decided to have new basketball uniforms that were made out of denim. And I did two shows just on that. That's, you know, people were outraged that they would, you know, the historical value of the uniform. But it, that's, that's what they would talk about. And it didn't matter what was going on. I knew the place was obsessed. The first time I went to a preseason scrimmage, and I was driving back to my apartment that night, and I was listening to the flagship station, which had the broadcast rights, and they had just won a scrimmage against, I don't know what the team was, but the gentleman on the air took a phone call, and one of the callers said, well, do you think we can beat athletes in action in the next game on Thursday? I mean, this is how, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, really? This is how obsessed they were with college basketball in Lexington. They were great fans. Every night was sold out. And, uh, you know, they, it's just a, it's an amazing passion. You know, you have that in a lot of places. You know, Duke has it. North Carolina has it. But I, I'd never seen that, a 100-piece pep band for every home game. So it was just it was a pretty remarkable experience. You talked about doing your homework and preparing, and you've done it for both sports talk and for uh, play-by-play. And you've done it for 35 years, so you've had different levels of technology to aid that preparation process. How has your preparation process adjusted and continued to develop over time with the addition of the Internet and other technology? So it's, it's really a, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, in the early days, <coughs> I remember when USA Today was, was invented. And USA Today came into being and... You know, I was at one point an air personality doing a music show, and I was like, this is amazing. It has news, it has money, it has sports, and it has lifestyle. And it really became all the different attributes that you needed to, uh, to prep. Now, as I was doing baseball, um, I've always been a detail person. You know, and, and for a play-by-play guy doing baseball, to me the most important thing was your scorebook you know, and how do you put it together. And I eventually I found a really good scorebook. It was actually put together by the, uh, the play-by-play announcer for he's now for the Nationals, and at one point was with St. Louis Bob Carpenter, and he had this book, and it just was perfect. It had everything laid out. But I would take, you know, several hours putting that together because I had to look up the stuff myself because there really wasn't technology in terms of computerized systems. My second year in Wichita, we got a computer for the first time, and I ended up then putting, I was also putting game notes together for the team, which would assist me in the prep. And as I did that the first couple of times, um, the second year, I believe, uh, Dave Trembley, who had a cup of coffee in the majors, was the manager. And I walked out of his office and I said, here, Skip, you can take a look at this if you want. It was, I did like eight, nine pages. He was like, I want this every day. Okay. So I made work for myself. But what it became was it was a way for me to build a relationship with the manager to the point you know, you'd be done with a series in El Paso, like, come on, go with us to dinner, you know, and you build that relationship, and that's really, that's part of the key to the prep, is being able to be around the manager, be around the players, talk to them, don't put a microphone in front of them, and just hear them converse about what's going on, 
and you take notes on all that stuff, and then all of a sudden you've got your prep putting together. I mean, now today it's so much more involved because of technology. Um, you know, as, as, a, as an example, uh, one of my responsibilities as the program director at WBAL in Baltimore is I oversee the production of the Baltimore Ravens radio broadcast. And so during the week, both teams send out releases every day. You know, you get reams of information on each team. You get executive press releases every day. You know, the biggest challenge is, I believe, for talent, and this is what I'm working with the talent that are on our broadcast, is to go through all the stuff and pick the topics and the storylines that will play to the broadest set of the audience. It's always about knowing how deep do you go into the weeds. You know, you don't want to go too much into the X's and O's because, again, you, you know, you've got people who are listening kind of casually. You know, some people listen intently, but a lot of people, they want to know the score, they want to know what quarter it is, they want to know where the ball is, what yard line, and they want to know what the key storyline. So you have so much more that's available to you now, you have to be able to pick and choose what's really going to make the difference in terms of driving a good, solid broadcast that will keep the audience engaged. One of your stops that I found especially interesting was basically starting, I believe, starting a radio station from scratch in Dallas, as you mentioned, your ESPN, I believe, right. was 103.3. And if I remember from when we chatted at the NSSA weekend two years ago, you said that getting the Dallas Maverick rights was huge for the development of that station. And we all know that Mark Cuban is a little bit of a mercurial owner what was working with him like as far as getting the rights to the Mavericks? How did you sell it to him? Well, it, um, you know, it's funny. He was one that he likes to delegate, and in the end, it was his number two guy, Tradima Usri, who just left the organization several months ago, and he went to take a big job for Under Armour. Um, Mark, as you say, is a, is a little bit different. You know, one of the things that we figured out when I got to Dallas, we had signed the station on in the spring, and the Maverick rights were up, and the Mavericks were in the playoffs, and I made the decision along with the general manager, let's do pre- and post-game content to at least show them what we could do. And I put all the bells and whistles. I had someone in the arena. We you know, found ways to send audio back. We, made, we dressed it up with great production value. And I had you know, one thing that the other guy didn't have. I had an FM stick. And so the, the Mavericks saw the value of going to FM, and then they saw the value of, and they were on a news and news talk station, they saw that we could promote them 24-7 and make them really part of the fabric of the radio station. And that was part of the overall strategy. We had that, and then the other part was let's just do everything we can on the team that matters the most in Dallas, which are the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, we did research studies that showed the Mavericks could be in the first or second round of the playoffs, and the Cowboys could be having mini camps, and people would rather hear about the mini camps. So we were really smart in terms of, how we put that strategy together, and then it was the power of the brand of ESPN and just ESPN deciding to come to Dallas and put forth a radio station with, you know, what their brand means. I remember when I went for the job interview and I talked with the sales manager, I said, you're not on for a few months. Are you doing anything with sales? He said, come on out here with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he showed me this big dry erase board, and it had all of um, – these clients that had agreed to buy advertising, even though the station wasn't on yet. And I said, why did they do that? And he said, because it was ESPN. Once we told them we were ESPN, we got in the front door. 
Give us some stories. Did you ever have an issue where maybe one of your hosts or play-by-play guys said something that you know, Mark Cuban or Jerry Jones or somebody didn't like, and one day you ended up with them on the phone unhappy with you? Did that ever happen? It really, did, it really didn't because I prepared my staff for that on a regular basis. I said, you know, and I knew when they were going into big games, you know, be careful of what you say. And this is a program director's job and responsibility is communicate ahead of time so they know that, look, you have to walk a fine line here. You're a partner with the team. I mean, it's part of what I've, I've told every team that I've worked with. I said, we're going to say some things that you may not like if it's about how the team plays on the field. One of my, you know, prevailing strategies has been is never make it personal. You know, don't, don't be detrimental about somebody personally and what they're doing. Be... You know, you can be critical of their play, but don't make it personal. As long as you stay away from that, that's important. And then if you're going to have to talk about something sensitive, I believe it's the program director's job to pick up the phone and call the people on the other end and give them a heads up and then say, if you'd like to respond to this, we'll be happy to give you the time. So I was, I was actually pretty fortunate. I heard a couple of stories after I left that a couple times some of the talent went a little bit too far. I would get up every year and give this big speech about how proud I was that the Mavericks never called us because we were, you know, playing the game the right way. And then I, I guess, I don't know if it was a year or two later, they said some things about the Mavericks in the playoffs so they didn't p- perform well against Miami. And the, the phone, phone call finally came, and it was while they were negotiating an extension. They, they eventually got it done, but it slowed the process down. I mean, managing in the world today is so important because of the relationship between the franchise, whether it's a pro franchise or a college uh, sports team, and the radio station, because it's supposed to be a partnership. And how you balance that, I think, is really one of the key parts of the whole process. What went into the decision to stop doing play-by-play and stop hosting shows and really put all your energy into management? Because most of us have a big passion for being on air. We have egos. We like to be heard. What led the decision-making process to not be on air anymore? Um, it really came down to, I mentioned uh, the consultant and my work with him, and I worked with him in Lexington, I worked with him in uh, Salt Lake, and then I worked with him in Portland. And he at one point came to me and said, Scott, look, he says, I know you love being on the air, and you're, you're decent on the air. I mean, I was the facilitator. I would set the other person up. He said, but you, you seem to have a knack for leading. You seem to have a knack for putting formats and all these different things together. I think it's in your best interest to go off the air and really lead and be be a leader and set forth a vision. And I, by the way, I fought it all the way. I went in Portland. I found ways to like somebody wasn't available. I'll fill in. I'll, I'll do that. I got to Dallas the one year. I did the studio shows for the Mavericks because we were a little tight on personnel. But eventually, it got to the point where it just it was too much. I mean, it, I was you know I remember in Portland I was hosting a show at three o'clock and being the program director the rest of the day. And I'm like, I'll work till noon, and then I'm going to prep. And then it's like, I'll work till 1, and then I'm going to prep. And then it's like, I'll work till 2, and I'm going to prep. And then it was like, well, I'll work, and then I'll walk in at 2.30 and see what they have for me. And it just, it's hard to balance as you get into a bigger market to do that. I mean, I would, I would love to be on the air, and maybe at some point when I retire, maybe I'll go back and call high school games or something like that. But now it's like I really enjoy teaching and coaching and giving feedback to talent and helping them get better at what they do and when I can, can make that happen and I see the improvement in the talent, then I feel I've really done a good job. So I want to go into your relationship with Colin Coward. You said he started almost the same time as you in Portland, and I'm 
assuming that you brought him along with you as one of your main hires when you went to ESPN on the national level. Just describe your relationship. Are you guys in close contact? Is it strictly professional? How does that work for you? Well, he's the best talent I've ever worked with. I don't think there's anybody better. He knows how to build topics, and he's entertaining, and he's thought-provoking, and he he works harder than any talent I've ever known. I left um, Portland, and I went to Dallas, and we really didn't talk that much for a while. And then eventually I ended up in Bristol um, going to work for Bruce Gilbert, and then he left, and I worked for some other folks. But Bruce was actually conducting a search for the next talent to replace Tony Kornheiser, and we had some conversations, and he eventually got together with Colin and brought him along. Um, you know, Colin was one of those guys. He'd always come by and want to test out, you know, material, you know, in the morning and that kind of stuff. And since I left ESPN, he's been very gracious. We've had several conversations. I talked to him to wish him good luck on his new new show on Fox. And, uh, you know, I just can't say enough good things about how great a talent he is. It was interesting, one of the uh, – one of the sports guys that has a uh, has a blog and a website, they did a uh, a mock talent draft. I think to coincide with the NFL draft, and so he sends me a note. He says, "You actually get to pick first. We we drew all the names out of a hat, and you were number one." And I said, "Well, that's easy. I'm going to pick Colin Coward." And Colin, I guess, eventually found out about that and called and said he'd heard about that and was, was thought it was very cool. But I mean, it's just. If I was going to start a radio station or a radio network and I wanted one talent to build around, here's a guy that can talk sports, he can talk pop culture, he can talk news events. Um, he's very good at taking you know, a topic and then playing it back to sports. Um, he is able to – he's a guy that always wants to work on the slow day. You know, When he was starting you know, out in network radio and it was Memorial Day, he always worked because he knew that other people might be listening that normally wouldn't hear him. And, uh, you know, his show prep is legendary. I mean, just the way he would prep for a show, I would go to work in the morning at 7, 7.30, walk in, and he'd be in the studio <coughs> with his production team, basically scripting out where he's going to go to start the show. Now, he might go all over the place later on, but he had a definite plan where he wanted to go, which made his opening segment, his opening 10 minutes, the most anticipated 10 minutes in sports network radio when he started every day at 10.02. What did he do in his preparation process that most people don't? What made him special? Well, he he sits there, you know, in the studio. He's got his producer. He's got, you know, an AP with him. He may have another manager in there. The best way I can describe it, if people remember Bill Walsh, the former coach of the San Francisco 49ers, Bill was known for scripting his first 15 plays. And in essence, that's kind of what Colin does. He scripts out where he's going to go. He's got a yellow notepad. You know, and so he's always got, you know, a uh, sense of what the topic's going to be. He's got a payoff and a destination. And then as the show evolves, he may take some of the stuff and repurpose it, and then he may go somewhere else depending upon the news of the day. But just his approach, his conversation with his colleagues, his testing out of, of content, he would walk around to all of us who are managers and want to sort of run that bias. I mean, not many talent would put the time and effort. He grinds it out every day. I think that's what makes him, you know, one of the best talent in the business, period. What were your thoughts on the regrettable comments that I personally think were misinterpreted sometimes when you say things on live radio, they just come out wrong, but the reaction to his comments about Dominican baseball players? I think it was unfortunate. I think, you know, when you're going to do three hours of 
talk radio, sometimes things are going to happen. You know, one of the things I always told the people that were working with Colin and others, you have a dump button, you know, for audio. And primarily dump buttons are for, you know, improper language. But, you know, you could also use a dump button for improper content. Now, all that being said, I think Colin knows he shouldn't have said that. You know, I don't really want to speculate much further. I mean, you know, I know that had he been under contract for a long term, I don't know if, if, if ESPN would have parted ways with him. But at that point in time, I think ESPN just decided to go in a different direction. Colin showed some remorse. He's on the air now. And, you know, you gotta, you got to be careful. I mean, it's something all talent have to deal with. We're in a world today where everything is so scrutinized on the air and if you take the wrong approach, it can be uh, received in the wrong way. So that's where, you know, everybody involved in the production has to be vitally aware of where you're going with all this stuff. It's a challenge. As long as you've been involved in radio, what are the things that you've said, maybe that you have wish you had hit the dump button for and didn't? Me, me personally on the yes. air? I was kind of, I was kind of milk toast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know... Uh, I do remember um, in Lexington, I was running a stand-up board, and um, it was a three-second delay, which would be unheard of today. And I had a caller call me on the air, and he just played along, and then at the end he goes, Scott, i got one more thing to say, and he goes, blank you. And I, I think the reaction, you know, I was like, oh, my goodness, it's the end of my life. I reached down and I hit the dump button, and I was shaking like a leaf. And... Uh, you know, the producer was actually in the next room. He walked in and goes, what's the matter? Everything's fine. You know, but, um, you know, just trying to be consciously aware. And I think, you know, part of the thing that, that I've learned is that if you say something wrong, the most important thing you need to do is apologize as soon as possible because that will help put people at ease and realize, okay, maybe you had a had a had a had just a, a bad moment where you went somewhere. But, it's, you know, it's, it's more of an issue with certain talent than with other talent who want to, you know, sort of, sort of go on, on that level and, and be really aggressive. It's about knowing how far to go to the third rail. Um, I'm not saying that it's acceptable, but some talent, Collins worked really hard at knowing how far to go and how far not to go. And in general, most of the time he knows when to stop. Um, some talent don't know when to stop. In today's world, if you don't stop, you can get fired right away, and that's something that all talent need to be aware of, but it's also something that program directors need to coach their talent on. You've been part of, I'm assuming as manager and as talent of stations that have gone under and left you, as you mentioned, just kind of, oh, hey, I don't have a job anymore today. I need to find something to do. Was How discouraged did you get at those moments? Were there ever thoughts of getting out of the business? I've never thought about getting out of the business. And it's funny, I have a lot of friends that I worked with all the way back that are out of the business now. What I, what I have learned, and, you know, I left ESPN, and that's just the way it worked out. What I've learned is the importance of networking and building relationships, you know, and networking constantly. And I think that it's important for, you, for young people in the business to know, as soon as you get that new job, you need to quietly start networking for the next job. That next job may not come for two years, three years, four years, whatever, but build those relationships. When I left ESPN, the next day I had like four or five phone calls. And eventually, I was one of the fortunate ones. I got to choose what I did and where I went. But that doesn't come without taking the time to network and to talk with people and to just, you know, go to conferences, be seen, 
you know, talk to other people who know other people, build resume lists, all that stuff. And it's all almost like a second job. It's fun to do it anyway because you meet different people and find out different things. And then you get yourself in a position that, you know, you may be somewhere and you may decide you want to go do a new job. The thing that's most important for anybody is, and this is what I tell people, is be loyal to yourself first and foremost so that you're in a position to, you know, expand your career as you move forward. When you left ESPN, you went to WBAL in Baltimore. You left the sports radio business for kind of just a general news sports frequency in Baltimore. What went into the decision to leave ESPN at that time to take a non-sports job? Well, I just, you know, I've always been fascinated by radio. I'm, I'm fascinated by spoken word. Um, you know, I didn't get in broadcasting just to do sports. I mean, I was, I was a music jock for a while. played a lot of bad disco records in the late <laughs> 70s. Um, and so I, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to stay in the Northeast. I had opportunities to go to different parts of the country. It's a heritage radio station. Um, you know, as, as we sit here talking tonight, we're running the uh, presidential debate, which I kind of positioned it like another sporting event. You know, that's it's exactly how CNN positioned it. And, you know, all I'm interested in is, is driving good, strong, interesting content that will drive an audience. We do have sports. We, we produce the uh, Baltimore Ravens. We run Navy football. We have a sports talk show at night. So, I mean, the sports guys were very ecstatic when I got here because they knew that the guy had worked at ESPN. But a lot of the same principles apply, whether it's a news talk show or whether it's, it's a news wheel in the morning. It's just about bringing the content forward that plays to the broadest set of the audience. And I think yeah, there's, there's benefits in doing something different than what you just normally do. That doesn't mean I might not go back to sports full-time someday, but there's just the more you can put forth a vast array of different experiences – the better and smarter you're going to be as a programmer or as a talent. As a program director, you frequently spend time interviewing talent. Who are some of the people that have really, really impressed you in interviews that are now doing big things in major markets or even on a national stage that maybe you didn't expect to just by looking at their resume and cover letter? Well, I didn't really interview him, but it was kind of said, you're going you're gonna to work with this guy. And I'm talking about Randy Galloway, who uh, recently retired, and he was on a news talk station, WBAP in Dallas. It said it was in the same building. They're going to bring him down. <clears throat> and I didn't know what to expect because he sort of done it a set way forever. And we were able to work with him and get him to do things in a different way. And he became top three men, 2554. And he's of all the shows I've ever overseen, that's my proudest moment as a uh, as a programmer because <clears throat> we surrounded him with some younger people, made him really hip, and he just took off and had great ratings. So he's he's really you know the guy that really just excited me a great deal. And then you know my last couple of years at ESPN, I was very involved in the recruiting of George Sedano, who's a guy that's worked in Miami and now works at the network. And I just think he's a terrific talent. He was a program director. I didn't know what to expect. I was actually doing work in Miami on a regular basis, and we would just sit at the Hyatt Regency where I was staying, and we would talk radio for hours on end, and just a really bright, smart guy. And those are the kind of things that you like to see, is like people like that who are always trying um, to get better at what they're doing and take it to the next level. You know, I had 
I, I, it's also the value of, of imaging and perception becomes reality. I had a guy in Portland, Oregon, that, that wrote for a local newspaper and covered the Portland Trailblazers. A guy named by guy by the name of Kenny Vance. He actually did a show with me, and he was the local guy. Had a pretty good sense of humor, but I did a really good job of imaging him on the air as the Blazers insider, and that became his persona. And he really took it to the next level and did really a great job. So knowing how to image talent and put them in the right place, that's something I take a lot of pride in. What are interview mistakes that maybe otherwise talented people make that prevent them from getting hired? Um, Not being open to change, not being open to the fact that there may be a different way of doing things, um, not being open to feedback, um, you know, not showing that you really want to be a talk show host if, if you really want to be a play-by-play talent then you probably shouldn't try to be a talk show host some people can do it but i've had a lot of people say well i just i'd like to do this but i really want to be a talk show, i really want to be a play-by-play guy that's great then go be a play-by-play guy i want people who really want to be able to do a talk show so um you know attitude you know means everything being positive being open to you know listening to different ways of doing things um you know, those were some early lessons I learned when I worked for some really good GMs or I was a little resistant to doing some things differently. And they said, look, you got to stop, you know, folding your arms and just be open to the opportunity. And the more you do that, the better off it's going to be. And then it becomes fun. Okay, let's try this today or let's do it this way. You know, in my at the this point in my career, I'm a talk show host. I'm a play-by-play guy. I'm also the lead salesperson at the station. And one of the dynamics in radio that I always find very interesting as someone who sees both sides, the sales side and the on-air side, is that there's usually a little bit of contempt between the on-air staff and the sales staff, and I think they just don't think that sales is a difficult part of the job. You know, what would you say to someone who was thinking about potentially getting into sales and how that could help their career? Well, I think it's about relationships, you know, I mean... I realized a long time ago that the most important colleague I can work with at a radio station is the sales manager because the sales manager, if you do it the right way, can help you achieve things you might not normally be able to achieve. And if you can help him, it's a two-way street. I remember in Portland, Oregon, there were times where I wanted to do something, but I had no money in the budget. But if I could help them, you know, put forward, you know, what they needed to do um, and help them make money, then I could get funding if I wanted to go do a certain show or something. So. I think that that becomes a really, really important relationship. I spend time with our sales department on a regular basis, and we're all working together for the common good of the radio station. And we just, you know, we have to educate each other on what's the best thing to do. My personal passion is in play-by-play, and I've just the way that I've gotten jobs is through sales and through doing other on-air stuff and just wearing a lot of hats. If I really wanted to advance in the play-by-play business. What would you recommend? Would you continue to do sales? Would you try to get away from that and just focus on play-by-play? How would you handle the juggling act that someone in my position at a young, as a younger person at a radio station has to do? I think it, it really comes down to, I mean, you have to pay the bills, right? So, I mean, that's part of the challenge. You can't, you know, you can't sometimes just do the play-by-play because it doesn't pay you enough money. Um, you know, but in the end, if you can help somebody show them ways they can make money, whether it's through play-by-play or something else, that's going to be a a feather in your cap. I think the most important thing is 
getting feedback on what you do, getting someone to listen to your stuff and give you feedback and developing a strategy to get better. I think it's also important to network and just that's that's the hard part because most jobs that are advertised today, by the time they're advertised, there's kind of a short hit list of probably who the top candidates are. <clears throat> network with other colleagues in the business that you really respect and may have an angle on where these jobs are. I think that's really what it comes down to is just being able to network. But until you're at a point where you can afford it, you may just have to do more than one job. That's just the reality of the world we're in. All right. As this site is meant to be a re- entertainment and a resource potentially for broadcasters, and as I'm always trying to get better, I, I'm going to ask this at the end of every podcast. Grade this interview. Was it something you enjoyed? Was it something you felt that I touched on some new stuff, brought up some interesting angles, or was it just more of the same that you get all the time, I'm sure? No, I thought, <clears throat> I thought it was good. You covered a lot of different angles. You sort of you know, looked at you know some stories. You had a little bit of fun and talk about what's going on in broadcasting. I think the thing that's always important with every piece of content you put forward is, and I don't know the answer to this, but it's how long do you make the interview so that you can keep the person engaged and listening. But I thought you did a good job. Absolutely. All right. Well, once again, thanks for joining us here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. We're visiting with Scott Masteller, the program director at WBAL in Baltimore, and I really appreciate you taking some time to join me here. All right, sir. My pleasure. All right, thanks for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. We'll have another one in two weeks, so stay tuned.